This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in your podcast app. Thank you so much for coming here today and watching the film. I'm Sasha Razor. I'm a lecturer at our Film and Media Studies here. And with me is Professor Omar Karapetsky, professor at the UCLA Department of um, East European, Eurasian, and Slavic languages and cultures, and a specialist on Ukrainian literature and culture. Roman is also the member of the Ukrainian diaspora and grew up in New Jersey. Um, and hopefully, we'll have a wonderful conversation and discuss this movie. So my first question to you, Roman, is about the right of Kutubinsky. This film was made for 100-year anniversary of author Mikhail Kutubinsky. Who was he and what is his standing in Ukrainian literary pantheon, so to say? Okay. Uh, Kutubinsky belongs to the, let's say, the third generation of Ukraine, modern Ukrainian writers. The first generation, uh, where we can say the Romantics. The second generation were the... Um, ethnic real, ethnographic realists, and Kuchubinsky belongs to a group of uh, writers that were born in, in the 1860s, 1870s, uh, that we can call Ukrainian modernists. And uh, he belongs to a one of a number of very, very good prose writers in that period uh, that debuted in the uh, 90s and the early 80s, 90s, and then in the teens. And uh, a number of them wrote similarly to Kujimensky, were fascinated with the uh, kind of the ethnic groups of uh, Ukrainians, the mountain people above all. Uh, a writer like Stefanik, who was interested in one group of people, the Baikos, another one who was also interested in the Carpathian Mountains, like uh, Kujimensky was himself. And uh, as a modernist, there three things that we can talk about when we talk about Kuchubinsky. One, he was very much a modernist realist in the sense that he was in, um, clearly influenced by uh, naturalism and photographic realism on the one hand, also very interested in, in particularly in uh, exploring socio-psychological questions and psychological questions as well. There is a great deal of impressionism in his work, he's fascinated with nature and describing nature. And then I think also very modernist of him is also the uh, fascination, the relationship of the writer to his writing. In other words, kind of a metafiction. There's several stories of his in which he talks about the responsibility of a writer to his art on the one hand and to the society that he belongs to and has a certain obligation to serving. And there's a fascinating story by him called The uh, Blossom of the Apple Tree, in which a father writer himself is watching his child die, and he's spending the whole time thinking, should I be caring for the child or should I be writing my experiences? And this tension between reality and the, the trauma of the death of the child, and at the same time his... Uh, compulsion to write all of this down. And in this sense, again, getting back to what the way it began, and very much Kuchbisky is very much a writer of that modernist period. 
Jo, ja ten the 1960s Soviet Union, Soviet Ukraine, Kutubinsky was thought a little bit like the socialist realist writer. And this film, the reason why it went into production is because they cast it as the socialist realist plot for the film studio. So could you tell us how, what kind of adaptation did Parajanov make, how faithful it is to Kutubinsky, and what does he take and what does he leave out? Okay. Well, uh, it's interesting. I want to talk about that, uh, the socialist realist part, because Kuchubinsky, like many of his generation, was very much a progressive leftist uh, 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 writer. He has a number of stories and even a, a novella about uh, the uh, revolution of 1905 and the consequences of the revolution of 1905. But getting back to uh, the uh, uh, adaptation of the film, uh, there's a very interesting moment at the very beginning of the film, and I'm sure you all noticed it, is when the father of uh, Ivan, little Ivan, uh, points out the rich man and says, oh, this is Satan here, and then they get into a fight, the father gets killed. Well, this, is, doesn't, this, this, this part isn't in the story. Uh, this is something that um, uh, uh, Parajanov, I think, probably added as a kind of ort to the uh, cultural commissars to show that this movie has some sort of socialist realist content to it. The um, class struggle, if you will, rich, poor, that is in the movie really doesn't exist in the story. And um, one thing that is fascinating about the story is the way Kuchubinsky presents the Hutzul's worldview, which means their uh, hurting all their customs, and above all, their supernatural beliefs, or the beliefs in the supernatural. And he presents it in a very, very realistic way. What he tries to do is he tries to perceive this world as a Hutzel would perceive it, but as a realist writer would present, or present, as a realist writer presents it to us modern readers. And there is this mix of we perceive the world of Ivan in always photographic manner. There's no, the narrator doesn't have any kind of distance or a kind of, any kind of condescension or uh, any outside view of this Hutzel world. He tries to look through this world, through Ivan's eyes, as if the supernatural is completely natural to the writer. And this is something I think that Parajanov doesn't quite get. Uh, there is a certain sense of voyeurism on the on his part as a director, uh, a kind of a anthropologist's outside view of this world. The one thing that he does get, I think, uh, quite well is Kuchubinsky's fascination with nature and the way he describes nature, and the way he describes the customs, the colors, the trees, the landscapes. That, I think, Parajanov does well. Or really, actually, it's probably the cinematographer, Ilyanko, who really does the work there to, 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 to give us the impression of what this world looks like visually. Thank you so much. And for our audience members who are not very familiar with Ukraine, could you explain quickly who, who are the Kutsuls and how do they fit into the diverse ethnic tapestry of Ukraine? Well, uh, uh, the uh, southwestern part of Ukraine is bounded by the Carpathian Mountains. 
and there are several mountain pe mountain peoples <laughs> that live in these Carpathian mountains. There's the ones that live on the Polish side of the Carpathian mountains. There's one that lives on the Ukrainian side of the mountains. And then there's the ones that live in the highest part of the mountains that border Romania and Hungary, Romania above all. And this is the Hutsuls. And they have probably the most, uh, they're the most, uh, I don't want to use the word primitive, but let's say the least developed, the, the most archaic of all of these Ukrainian subgroups. And it is for this reason, I think, that Ukrainians in the lowlands have always been fascinated by the Hutsuls of their own special culture, their archaic pre-Christian beliefs, for instance, I think what you can see in the movie. And uh, it was also a place where people in the 1920s already began to go for vacations. And the lowlanders would go there, again, fascinated by this type of culture. And this culture still existed. Uh, in the 1920s, my mother, for instance, would go in the, in the 1930s. She went with her families up into the uh, mountains during the summertime. And uh, can I tell a quick story? Yes, of course. <laughs> in the summertime, uh, the, when they would go to church, what these people do is that they, you, you probably saw their hair it tends to be slicked down. It's slicked down with uh, sheet butter. And so when you go into a church when it's hot in the summertime, she said, you look at these men. And this stuff would just be dripping down from their heads and everything would smell of lanolin everywhere. It was a very unpleasant experience. But it was there, it was the lowlanders kind of contact with the primitive, the archaic. And for Kutubinsky himself, that was a foreign context and he was not from the area, but he managed to describe the society as if from the inside. And of course, when Parajanov got there, no one wore ethnic costumes anymore. And this is the world that he had to reimagine anew and reconstruct from the ethnographic material that he found on location. Um, I wanted to ask you a different question that relates to your broader area of expertise, romanticism, because you're really the expert on this. So one of the influences on Kutubinsky's new romanticism, and it shows here in this film as well, could you talk about the broader significance of new romanticism for literary and cinematic narratives in East Central Europe and Eastern Europe as well? Well, it, it's the... It's not so much an influence of neo-romanticism. It really is neo-romanticism. The neo, of course, is a kind of a return to romanticism. And here the mountains play a very important role. The mountains were first, and here I'm going to talk about both the Ukrainian mountains and the Polish mountains, as make the connection in, this min in a minute. The mountains were the mountains and the mountain people were first discovered in the Romantic period in the 1820s, 1830s in, in, in Poland and in, in Ukraine. There's one of the relatively early Romantic Ukrainian writers who wrote in 1840s, 1850s, was himself a Hutsul. Um, and uh, these mountains then were rediscovered with it, uh, among the modernist writers. And um, they were rediscovered... Rather, from, rather than from a romantic point of view, they were rediscovered from a Nietzschean point of view that, on the one hand, the, the modernist writers viewed these people as uh, kind of noble savages, but 
when I say from a Nietzschean point of view, Noble Savage is a superman. Uh, as you can see with the sorcerer here, uh, humans who could overcome these natural uh, uh, forces, but at the same time were part of these natural forces. Uh, there is a very similar set of stories set in the Polish Carpathians in the Tatra Mountains, and a writer who wrote almost exactly at the same time, and a very about Polish writer, Kazimierz uh, uh, Przerwa Tetmeyer, uh, who wrote in very much the same way as Kuczubeski described them, using dialect, for instance, and dialect not just in the dialogue, but dialect also in the narrative as well, uh, which, by the way, is something that Parajano tries to do here, but in a very interesting... Can I talk about this in just very, very briefly? It's very interesting here that the main stars of the movie all speak perfectly standard Ukrainian. Uh, no accent, no dialectal words there, nothing. Uh, whereas the locals, and particularly in the scene, uh, the black and white scene, they all speak Hutsul dialect in that part. And it's kind of jarring for somebody who knows Ukrainian to see these main actors speaking perfectly uh, uh, perfectly good standard Ukrainian, and then around them these hutsuls uh, in dialect, which you don't have in the story, by the way, because everybody in the story speaks dialect, uh, including narrator, too, at times, very stylistically, very carefully, but nonetheless, he uses a lot of dialect words there that a Ukrainian probably doesn't know. You have to look them up in a, in a, in a dialect dictionary to understand what is going on. And this... Uh, <laughs> It's interesting the way there's an analogy to this, the way Parajanov refused to have uh, the movie dubbed into Russian. And his reason was that, well, it doesn't, it's not right to have it dubbed into Russian because you, you would miss the, uh, the probably, he wasn't thinking about missing the dialects. He just didn't want it dubbed in Russian. And in a sense, he's, repeating what Kuchubinsky is trying, and I don't think, I think not quite consciously, what Kuchubinsky was trying to do is essentially that this story cannot be translated into another language because of the use of dialect both in the narrative and in the uh, dialogues as well. Of course, and some of the actresses there are Russians, so someone like Larisa Kadachnikova, she had to learn Ukrainian to be in the film, and that is also... One factor why the Ukrainian that is used there is standard. Um, so the film is shot in the ethnographic mode by Parajanov, and it contains lots of rituals that we see on screen. We see weddings, funerals, re religious ceremonies, and they are really the centerpiece of the story and the driving force behind the plot. Could you talk about the significance of rituals for these rural societies and how do you, th do you think it works for, for the production of this particular film? Okay, I'll, I'm going to want to talk about it in a slightly different way. I think that all of you may have noticed, remember this film was made in 1960, begun, I think, in 1963 and 64. This is the Soviet Union, and I'm sure you noticed the almost in-your-face religi uh, uh, exhibition of really, religiosity in this movie. Uh, which the uh, censors and the cultural commissars were uh, rather hesitant, and this is one of the reasons why this movie was kind of slowed down. Uh, what you probably see is that this mix of 
Christian ritual as well as pre-Christian ritual in this movie. And uh, one thing that we have to remember is, and it's done in an ethnographic way. Uh, I was clearly, Parajan was fascinated by, clearly the Hutsuls of his time don't practice these rituals anymore, or maybe they do in a very um, attenuated way. Uh, but what we see in this, is, is almost an anthropological or ethnographic fascination with uh, ritual in this movie. And this takes us back, remember, one of the first movies I think ever made was Nandok of the North, which had to do, was, was, was an ethnographic movie. And, uh, you know, the famous Yonamamo movie, uh, uh, the Amazon, all ethno ethnographic documentaries are, are, play a very, very important role in cinema. And I think, in a sense, Parajanov was trying to do that, but in a semi-fictionalized way to the point where he actually invented himself invented a ritual that that whole yoking marriage ceremony was something that he invented uh as <laughs> no no it 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 is known as an invented yeah, ceremony it is, yeah, it's, 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 um, there are yeah. several explanations to what it might mean but there is not one clear explanation that we can present to the audience. So maybe let's take a step back. I'm interested in your personal experiences as the viewer. You grew up in New Jersey in a Ukrainian community there, very prominent, and you studied at Columbia and then later Harvard. Do you remember the first time you watched this film? And what did you think of it? What was the reception in your community? Um, and, and this is a quite—it's it, this is a difficult question. I think if what if I remember correctly, I think I first saw it as an undergraduate at Columbia, so that would have been in the 1970s. Um, and one thing that we have to remember is this really is aside from aside from a, um, a 1930s version of a Ukrainian opera, uh, the Zaporozhians Beyond the Danube, which was made in New Jersey, actually. Um, uh, really, it's, it, you ever have a chance to see it? It's really quite interesting. Uh, this was really the first Ukrainian movie to, um, Soviet Ukrainian movie to make any kind of, uh, to be shown in the United States and to make an impression on the, uh, immigration within the diaspora. And, um, I assume that most diaspora Ukrainian audiences probably viewed this movie with, on the one hand, yes, it's Ukrainian, so that's nice, but probably they didn't really catch too much of it. Uh, it probably went over their heads, just like it did to many audiences in the Soviet Union, Soviet Ukraine at that time, except for the intellectuals. Uh, but uh, uh, I don't think it made the kind of impression that, you know, the average movie viewers probably just had a difficult time grasping it. So it was way too experimental for the average Ukrainian exactly. viewer to connect to exactly. the culture and appreciation. Socialist realist movies to, it would be much more comprehensible to the Ukrainian diaspora as they were to the uh, Soviet viewer as well. Yet this film enjoyed a wide festival circuit in uh, abroad, but in the Soviet Union, its distribution was stemmed after the first screening, which was turned into the political gesture um, on part of Ukrainian intelligentsia that clearly saw this film as their own and as an act of political dissent. Could you talk a little bit about the context of reception in Ukraine and what makes this film a political gesture? Okay, there are 
two point, two sides to this. Um, when this uh, this movie was made during the thaw, the general Soviet post-Stalinist thaw under Khrushchev, which at the same time in Ukraine meant that there was a thaw in uh, permitting ex greater expression of Ukrainianness, of Ukrainian ideas, Ukrainian uh, themes, and so forth in uh, the Ukrainian Soviet Republic. Uh, the first party, the, the, the uh, sec first secretary of the Ukrainian Communist Party was a very permissive person uh, in, as far as uh, the expressions of Ukrainian culture were concerned. Uh, so from the, around the early 1960s to when he was dumped, and I think it was 1972, uh, what we see it, when we see in the entire Soviet Union a thaw when it came to dealing with certain um, uh, previously taboo subjects, uh, such as you know existentialist angst among their, among heroes of, of of prose and so forth. In Ukraine, this was expressed uh, through greater uh, 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 through greater focus on themes about Ukraine and uh, the way Ukraine is, has been treated in, in the Soviet uh, um, um, in, in, during its part uh, during its existence as part of the Soviet Union and so forth. Hence, this film with its focus on a very particular special area that is specially Ukrainian meant that uh, there was there was a kind of a focus on Ukrainian things, very much uh, ex an explicit Ukrainian things. That's one 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 aspect of it. But then the other aspect of it really didn't have anything to do with the film itself. It had to do with a moment when this film was shown in Kiev and a Ukrainian dissident, Ivan Zhuba, took this occasion of this, this screening of this film to uh, uh, express a protest about arrests that had just occurred in uh, arrests of, uh, of, of, of cultural figures in Western Ukraine and said that this is a wonderful film, but people, you should be aware that people are being arrested in uh, Western Ukraine for being Ukrainian. And that led to two dissidents who were in the audience standing up and saying, those of you who are against Soviet tyranny, please stand up. Well, a few members of the audience stood up, not all of them. Uh, and there's lots of different, this, this, this moment has been really mythologized in the history of Ukrainian dissent. Uh, but uh, so there were, as I say, two aspects of it. One, this film was made during this Ukrainian Soviet thaw, and on the other hand, it was used as a uh, uh, an opportunity to actually make a political protest um, with something to do that something that didn't have anything to do with the film itself. Um, so, quick question, that just to contextualize it for our audience further: Could you give some examples of suppression of Ukrainian identity in the Soviet Union? Oh, <laughs> just, just a few. No, no, no. Uh, where, where do we start? <laughs> uh, uh, there was a very quickly. There was a brief period of Ukrainianization in 1920s when the Soviet uh, the Soviet system was uh, being introduced into Ukraine after a century's worth of oppression and repression of uh, uh, expressions of Ukrainianness, of the Ukrainian language in the course of the entire 19th century. Then the Stalinist period came 
uh, that on the one hand, Stalin got rid of most of Ukrainian intelligentsia, and at the same time, in the uh, in 1930, uh, like in 1933, 1933, there was a famine in Ukraine, a, uh, a Stalinist-induced famine in Ukraine, where several million people died. Then, after World War II, there was a concerted effort to russify uh, Ukrainian culture, where Ukrainian culture was viewed as second, uh, as, as Ukrainians were viewed as second-class citizen. The language was being repressed. Very, very fewer and fewer schools uh, were uh, schools in Ukraine were allowed to function in Ukraine. Hence, the Soviet. Uh, uh, the, the Soviet attitude towards uh, Ukraine and Ukrainian culture was very much a continuation of the uh, Russian imperial uh, attitudes towards Ukrainian culture. And again, the 1960s were this brief moment where Ukrainian expressions of Ukrainianness were allowed for a very brief period of time. And then in 1972, they were again uh, repressed. A number of Ukrainian dissidents were arrested. Uh, and this repression of uh, uh, and russification of Ukrainian culture really continued right through the entire Brezhnev period of 1970s and 19, early 1980s and until Gorbachev began to loosen things up again. And of course now we see a complete and utter deliberate destruction of Ukrainian culture, specifically targeted by the Russian troops and the Russian army. And my question could be a bit complex, but do you have an answer to why this is happening? And could we even explain such pathology? Again, <laughs> this is a continuation of a, a long history of uh, Russian colonial attitudes towards Ukraine, the belief that the Ukrainian people are really an artificial nation in one way or another, that if they do exist in, if they do exist separately in any one in, in any form, they exist separately within a much larger Russian uh, uh, culture and a Russian community. That these are simply people who really are Russians, if they really tried to, or if they really knew what they were, they really are Russians. Ukrainians are just something that's artificial. Um, and uh, at the, the, the attempt to, and this is yeah, the, 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 the destruction of Ukrainian culture and so forth, it's just simply another way of trying to uh, uh, eradicate uh, Ukrainian, uh, Ukrainian culture and um, Ukrainian well, in the, essentially, in the existence of Ukraine uh, and to uh, reabsorb it back into some sort of Russian imperial hole. And um, what more can we say about that? Right? Okay, then I have my last question to you, and then we'll proceed to the Q&A. In North American University, a lot of the production of the knowledge about the region is extremely Russo-centric, and Slavic departments since the beginning of the Cold War thrive on teaching the great Russian literature, and this is what students love, the Tolstoys and the Dostoevskis. And what can we do as scholars in this field today to help change the situation and address the very current and the very urgent crisis? Well, the first thing that I think everybody, and not just scholars, could do is to get money 
and contribute money to uh, organizations that provide weapons to Ukrainian soldiers. Uh, that's the most important thing at, 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 at this point in time. Uh, second of all, uh, there's more and more talk now of what people call decolonization of Slavic studies. And Slavic studies, as you probably are aware, Slavic studies have, as, as, as Sasha, Sasha just said, dominated by a Russocentric view of uh, not just Ukrainian culture, but in many ways other Slavic cultures as well. So other Slavic cultures that are parts of so-called Slavic departments in uh, the United States are usually um, uh, subservient to the main uh, subject that is being studied, that is uh, uh, Russian and Russian culture. Uh, one way of decolonizing um, uh, these types of departments is trying to view Ukrainian, but also Belarusian and Polish and Czech culture as uh, equal in their uh, um, uh, achievement, cultural achievements to Russian culture and to use these cultures as a way of examining Russian culture from the outside. In other words, having the, uh, the uh, colonies talk back to uh, the uh, former imperial center. And one way of doing this, in particularly in literary studies, is this the whole new um, field of study, I guess relatively new field of study called world literature. It's not all that new. It goes back to Goethe, obviously. But um, uh, viewing certain themes and subjects that are developed in Ukrainian and Czech and Polish culture as part of a larger uh, 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 cultural whole, and not just simply in the in Slavic department, not just simply dominated by the way the Russians view these uh, themes. Uh, hence, expanding uh, the uh, the uh, bibliography and the uh, the range of how these themes are dealt with in the minor culture. Obviously, there's also a practical matter too: is that there over the past you know decades, uh, the uh, majority of people who study Slavic cultures and who teach Slavic cultures have been trained as Russianists, and there's a dearth of Polonists, a dearth of Ukrainianists, a dearth of, of Bohemists in the United States, unfortunately. And that's another thing that can be done is to start training these people in these particular disciplines uh, to make balance these things out somehow. Thank you so much. And I would like to turn the floor to my colleague, Tyler Morgenstern, who would conduct the Q&A question. Hi, thank you so much. Great film and great presentation. Um, as I was preparing to watch this film a couple of days ago, um, I actually looked up the area where it was shot, the village, right? And I stumbled upon an account of many uh, refugees from Kiev that have actually found the Carpathian the only safe place to go. And at the same time, the town is identified with Parajana's work. Uh, so as it becomes some kind of a mecca for filmmakers and uh, how is that legacy contributing also to this kind of feeling of the resistance or something, the safety of that resistance? Uh, I didn't catch the second, that last part. How they... 
is it identified with some kind of a resistance movement? I mean, for filmmakers. <laughs> Maybe you I, I can address this question. So, Ukrainian people right now view their culture as a weapon, and um, there is actually a number of YouTube blogs that currently survey, for example, they do watches on the negative representations of Ukrainians in Russian cinema and talk about this being like a government plot to cast Ukrainians in a bad light. Um, so there is all that happening and they absolutely take movies as their weapons. And of course, that village is the mecca for Ukrainian cinema. There is a wonderful museum there. And the film itself is so venerated in Ukraine that it... Um, had a very large retrospective exhibition in 2015 for its 50th anniversary at uh, Mistetsky Arsenal in Kiev, which is the Contemporary Art Center. And they made, like, and the archivists made sure to get every single document that survived in the film studios and assembled it together. So, so again, this, this film has a very important symbolic status as the first Ukrainian film of Ukrainian revival that made it to the international film festivals. And But we also have to remember, too, is aside from that, and it, certainly culturally it's very important, but famous films and locales where famous films are made tend to draw people not just in Ukraine, but everywhere else. And we have to keep that in mind as well. There's this kind of fetishization of, uh, of, of locales where famous films were made. But here, and uh, Sasha's really, it's a very good point, is that uh, Ukrainians have used, particularly since the war, using culture as a weapon, another weapon against uh, uh, the invader. Okay, I have a question about the cinematography so there were a lot of really interesting and non-traditional camera setups throughout the film, like the one that was underwater with him drinking, the close-ups of all the trees, like the bark, um, and then the red and white flashing. I was wondering if there was like any specific filmmakers that he'd taken inspiration from, because I thought that was something really new that I hadn't seen before. Yeah, perhaps I can address this question. So the cinematographer for this film was Yuri Elienko. That was his second film at the time. His first film in which he, he was an actor, director, and cinematographer, man of many talents. His first film, he kind of tried to get a hold of this handheld camera and experiment with it. So he already knew what worked and what did not. This film, from what I know, is shot with two cameras, the Soviet handheld camera, which was made at the time, and the Vesna camera. Both were not really fancy, and people at the Dovzhenko studio didn't have access to the really fancy equipment. His largest influence, though, was the cinematographer of Mikhail Kalatozov, Urusevsky, Sergei Urusevsky, who short films like Cranes of Flying or Yo Soy Cuba, I Am Cuba. And Orusevsky, unlike Kalatozov, had access to much fancier equipment. This was shot with really basic cameras. And um, it was not the Parajanov's vision to begin with, because if you've seen other films by Parajanov, he gravitates towards this very static compositions. So there was quite a bit of tension between them too. And many, many, you know, many news sources talk about the duel that took place during the filming because they, they even dueled. They, they, Parajanov absolutely disliked what Ilyenko was doing, tried to fire it he once, but 
Luckily, it all ended well, and we have this film today. Hi, I just have a question about the ending. Could you elaborate on that? Do you mean the last last fragment with the children looking? Yeah, the children looking through the window, and uh, there is uh, someone chanting, and then stopped. That's the ending. Could you explain that? So, one thing which is really interesting that this particular frame, children looking through the window, appeared in many different kind of works of art in the cinema and just preparing for this Q&A I talked to the Ukrainian film critic who curated the exhibition, Andrei Alfiorov who told me, hey did you see that poster by the doors and Jim Morrison with children looking through the window, like very similar composition, so this is something that I think was in the air and um, this outside gaze of the child of uh, the innocence kind of restores us so brings us back to the beginning of the film when we see Ivan and Mom, Ivan and Marichka growing up as children. So that's one thing. And of course, we're witnessing at the very end a very supernatural funeral rite, which was kind of meant to rise from the dead, kind of the imitation of that. So, so that's another very important theme to talk about when analyzing this scene. And uh, I think another way of looking at, at those children looking in the windows are those children that he wanted with Palagna or with Marichka, and that these children only exist in outside. They don't exist in his world anymore, obviously. These children that he could have had somehow, because remember, he talks about that several times, about having children, his goats, his kids, literally. <laughs> I was just wanting to ask, what was the significance? Um, so... When, so when they had the table out, um, they were eating dinner, uh, together, right? And the children come in, um, they were singing the song, and then, uh, so she goes to cover the table, and she doesn't completely cover the karawai, which I mean, I guess it's a symbol of, like, their wedding, maybe, or I'm I'm not sure with what that was symbolizing because she didn't completely cover it and I was wondering if that's on purpose or maybe I'm just like reading too much into it yeah so that yeah I was wondering if you guys knew maybe well you have to remember it's not simply a dinner it's not simply kids coming in there singing it's a Christmas Eve dinner and the kids are singing a Christmas carol right uh so that that that's it's it's there's something it's a special dinner and uh, it's not it's it's the bread is for Christmas Eve and the Christmas Eve bread is a special uh, um, bread that symbolizes really that kind of encapsulates the entire Christmas Eve. And I suspect that's the reason that you can't cover it, that it's like you know, I mean, it's some sort of sacrilege if you completely covered it, particularly at that time of uh, that, you know, that particular ceremony, if you will, it's a particular type of dinner. That's the way I, at least I read it, because I noticed that as well. I think that's interesting. It could have something to do with a traditional ritual, but if you look at the um, entire film, there are many actions that remain half-finished in the movie. Yeah. And Parajanov does that, you know, the scene when she descends from the stack of hay and then he leaves her. So it's it's almost, we, we see the same motion uh, iterated throughout the plot. We know that uh, Russian... Similarly, creative movie director Andrei Tarkovsky, whose movies were also experiencing kind of very narrow showings in the Soviet Union, 
was receiving immense, immense financial support from the Soviet movie authorities, specifically to create movies for the international festival circuits to showcase the Soviet uh, cultural progress. And we know about this movie that it was also kind of creating a stir in the international uh, movie festivals, which also wouldn't happen without Soviet movie authorities showcasing and pitching this movie. So could you please comment on how this movie was actually used by the Soviet authorities, maybe essentializing the Ukrainian movie making and creating a better picture of the Soviet Union? There is an interesting story about when it was shown in Argentina, uh, the uh, audience viewed the film as a Russian film, essentially. Uh, they were saying, I, I, I don't know Spanish, but they were you know, saying, long live Russia or something like that. Despite uh, the large Ukrainian diaspora. And they, right, there's a Ukrainian diaspora there as well. Uh, so uh, it was, you're right, it was viewed as a Soviet product when it was uh, 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 sent abroad. And particularly, interesting enough, they weren't, uh, Parajana wasn't allowed to uh, uh, travel uh, abroad to, be, you know, to represent his own film, although Mik- Mik- uh, the actors, some of the actors were, though. Mikolai Chuk. Mikolai Chuk wasn't, right. Yeah. Um, I, for one, I would want to say that it wasn't very easy for Tarkovsky to garner budgets, and if we are to look at his biography, each film was an ordeal and very difficult to secure. And he had to write to the communist authorities, begging them to grant him a chance to make a film. Um, so it wasn't an easy, easy way to present his films for him. It was a long journey as well. Um, but you're absolutely right that this film was selected by the Soviet authorities to represent it and the international festivals as the achievement of the Soviet Union. And they thought of it as something that promoted the paradigm of the friendships of people, of course, because Parizanov was Ar- Armenian who grew up in Georgia and there were Ukrainian actors and so, so friendships of people product, yeah? But the, the circulation inside the country was very minimal. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.com. 